And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5? Most of you already know this, but for those who are new, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here on Sunday morning. And we have kind of camped in a section, taking a little longer with this section. It's a section that runs from chapters 5 through 7, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is also commonly known as the Great Manifesto of the Kingdom, because it contains the character and conduct of those who are members of the Kingdom. You see, we are citizens of the Kingdom because we have received the King to reign in our hearts over our lives. And as citizens of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount becomes the principle by which we live our lives to bring honor and glory to our king. That's our goal. Now, as we have been working our way through this section, we have come to realize that what Jesus is doing is, yes, he's laying out the character and the conduct of members of the kingdom. And yet he's doing it by way of correcting the false teachings of the scribes and Pharisees who were teaching the law in such a way as they were misapplying it, misinterpreting it, and really messing people's concept of what God originally intended for the law, messing it up. And so Jesus Christ is correcting the misconceptions of the scribes and Pharisees. And so starting in verse 21 and running through verse 48 of chapter 5, Jesus has been giving God's original intent for the law. The proper interpretation of the law is God originally intended for it. And he does so by touching on six different aspects of the law. Murder, adultery, divorce, honesty, demonstrating mercy instead of demanding justice, and loving our enemies. Six times he quotes from the rabbinic tradition of the scribes and Pharisees by saying, you have heard that it was said by those of old. But then he gives God's true interpretation by saying, but I say to you. Now this morning we come to the fifth aspect of the law that Jesus addresses, which is found in verses 38 to 42. And so let's read it, where the Lord said to his disciples, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, right off the bat, man, this goes against everything we as Americans stand for, doesn't it? I mean, one author put it well when he said, and I quote, One element of the great American philosophy of life is that we all have certain inalienable rights. Among the most important privileges that our Declaration of Independence espouses are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In our day, the number of rights claimed has greatly expanded. Movements have developed for civil rights, women's rights, children's rights, workers' rights, homosexuals' rights, prisoners' rights, and so on. Never has a society been more concerned about its rights, end quote. And so to hear Jesus tell his disciples, which were included in that group, That citizens of God's kingdom should not resist or retaliate against those who violate our rights. Folks, that makes us flat out angry, doesn't it? As a society, we've gotten used to demanding our rights. You hear it all the time. Hey, I've got rights. (laughs) See? So it's hard to get our minds around what Jesus is really commanding his disciples to do in this passage. And basically, that attitude 
was at the heart of the Jewish misinterpretation of an eye for an eye. You see, the scribes and Pharisees were teaching this as license for revenge. In other words, they were saying, if somebody wrongs me, I have the right to retaliate. However, that attitude is really at the root of much of the problems that we see in families today, marriages, of course, in churches, and in society. This vengeful, retaliatory spirit that wants to get even when somebody does me wrong, which is really pride-rooted in our fallen nature. That's all it is. But the Christian life is all about dying to self and laying aside my rights for the sake of others, even as Jesus did. And so again, we read in verse 38, where Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, This quote comes directly out of the Old Testament where it appears in three separate passages. But here again, as we saw last week, the scribes and Pharisees shifted the emphasis, yanked it out of context, and misapplied it into people's lives. Let me just say this. Many Christians struggle with trying to balance the idea of law and justice with Christian love and forgiveness. And I think this passage is fantastic for helping us to understand how it all works together. How we can balance, you know, law and justice and reconcile with the whole idea of Christian mercy, forgiveness, and love. You know, the Bible upholds and even mandates civil law and order. God himself is a God of law, order, and justice. You know, it was Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, who used this very passage, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42, to teach his philosophy that human society should be free from police, armies, soldiers, all authority, because then he taught we'd have utopia. No, we'd have anarchy. And no society can live in anarchy. That's not what Jesus is advocating here. Remember again, God is a God of law and order, not chaos and anarchy. God was the one who ordained human governments and authorities and has given them the right and the responsibility uphold justice by punishing lawbreakers. We know that Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 13 tells us that people in places of authority and civil government are agents of God, appointed by Him to maintain peace by punishing those who are lawless. Don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean everybody in civil government, as we well know, is godly. There are many people who abuse that position. And they will stand before God because they have been given a special place in society to represent him, just like judges. God said, you judges represent me. And if you misrepresent me, then I will hold you accountable. And so remember, we can talk about forgiveness and turning the other cheek as Christians, but at no time does it ever set aside or abrogate the rule of law or the punishment that goes along with it for those who violate the law. The question is, why did God give civil laws? And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about civil laws, laws that govern society. Well, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll read it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 9, Paul the Apostle tells us why God enacted civil laws. Paul said, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Righteous people don't need laws, external laws. Why? Because Christians have the law of God written in our our hearts. All right? We were rebels at one time. We accepted Christ. The Spirit of God came in, gave us a new heart with God's laws written in it, whereby we love to do what is right now. 
We don't always do it, but we, we should love that. If you're a true Christian, you want to please God. You want to help your fellow men. You don't want to hurt anybody. You want to help people. You don't want to steal and cheat and so on. So righteous people don't really need external laws to govern their lives. And Paul says the law was given not for the righteous, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul said that God established civil laws to protect the righteous and the weak from the ungodly, from evil people, so that we wouldn't have a society that was based on jungle law, which is the survival of the fittest. You know, John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, echoed this when he said, and I quote, Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or by a power without them either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or by the bayonet. See, he understood. There's only two forces that can curtail the evil in men's hearts. The first is that they are born of the Spirit, they receive Christ, and receive a new heart which wants to do God's will. But for those who are ungodly, for those who are unrighteous, who are still living in rebellion against God, they need external laws to help curtail them from going wild and just preying upon the weak and doing whatever they want in a society. So once again, Jesus never advocated laying aside civil laws, as some suppose he did here. He never advocated laying aside civil laws and the protection under those laws simply because we are not Christians. So the question is, then what is he saying here? Well, what is Jesus saying here? Look, the phrase an eye for an eye appears, as I said, three times in the Old Testament. Every time it's mentioned, it's always mentioned in the context, listen, of civil law, judges, and court. That phrase was never used in personal matters as a justification to take the law into the hands of private citizens and then use it to justify revenge as the scribes, Pharisees, and many others were doing in Jesus' day. Let's read the passages where the phrase an eye for an eye appears in the Old Testament. I'll read the first two to you and then we'll turn to the third one together. The first one comes out of Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25, where God said, If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Can you imagine if we had this in operation in our society today? Folks, you could walk the streets at night and not be afraid. If the crime and the punishment always equaled each other, of course, we could never have this because the ACLU would be screaming from every housetop in the world, you know, cruel and unusual punishment. Well, I thought justice was about getting what you deserve. You do something wrong to somebody else, I think it's totally just. You hurt somebody in a certain way, to have you have to receive that same punishment, to me, sounds fair. And it worked pretty well. Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, 
so shall it be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. That's justice, folks. It's totally fair. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And let's read starting at verse 15. Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15, God said, One witness shall not rise against a man. You, you, you can't just have one person as a witness against somebody to testify against them. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness, who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. Right on, Lord! If a guy purges himself in, in court against you, and they find it out, he gets what you, he wanted to do to you. Verse 20, or verse 19 again. Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, all three of these, but especially the last one, it's obvious that it's a court setting, isn't it? You've got judges, you've got witnesses, right? And God is saying that the way a society gets rid of evil in its midst is by giving just punishments quickly for those who commit crimes. And notice in verse 21 that the Lord makes a point to stress that there is no place in a court of law for pity. The law demands justice. In civil court, that is not a place for pity. We see examples of this violation all throughout our society. I remember a story years ago about a man who was um, convicted of rape. And um, I don't know, the judge determined that the guy had had a rough life or maybe he had been abused. So the judge determined, well, this guy's himself a victim, okay? I mean, he can't really be held responsible. I mean, he was a victim himself, and so now I'm, I'm going to, you know, give him probation. So he gives the guy probation. And the guy leaves there, I don't know how long after, a few days later. He goes and rapes and kills a nine-year-old girl. Or the story several years ago about a uh, drunk driver who was uh, arrested, tried, found guilty. But it so oftentimes happened in our society, I mean, he was just given a slap on the wrist. Because he's got a disease, okay? Alcoholism is a disease, and he's a victim. And so the judge basically gave him a slap on the wrist, gave him probation. And a few weeks later, he got drunk and started driving the wrong way down the expressway, plows head on into a bus, church bus full of young people, kills everybody. Now, we could go on all day, right, with these kind of stories. Why is that? Because our courtrooms have become a place of pity, where we're looking at the extenuating circumstances. What kind of childhood did you have? Did your mommy pick you up when you cried quick enough? Okay, what happened? And then they use it as a justification for leniency, or in some cases just to throw the thing out altogether. 
God said, court is not a place for pity. It's a place where, law is, where the law is upheld and justice is meted out. Why? That others will, will fear and obey. Verse 20, and those who remain, they shall hear and fear. They shall see what others who have committed crimes, the punishment. They will hear about it and they will fear. And the result is they will obey. God says, in this way you will remove the evil from your midst. But I just want you to see that the whole point in each of these passages is not to promote vigilante justice, but to mandate that the law is for the courts. It's never to be taken into the hands of individuals because, as God knew would happen, if everybody took the law into their own hands, you would have anarchy. You would have unjust. We don't want to get even. We want to get more than even, don't we? That's why God says, look, your punishments on crime should be quick and they should be just, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, etc. If God had not mandated that, if somebody you know, smashed me in the mouth and knocked the tooth out, I'd take a hammer and smash his head in. That's how we are. Our fallen nature wants to get more than even. And so God is saying, look, far from mandating any kind of vigilante justice, as the scribes and Pharisees were interpreting it, God is saying, look, a crime is to be dealt with in the courts. You are not to take the law into your own hands. God says, I've enacted civil law in judges and court for this very purpose. You, let, you bring it to the magistrates. You let the civil authorities deal with uh, matters of law and order. But then again, how do we reconcile civil law with Christian love? We do it by not confusing and commixing the one with the other. Look, justice and love are not mutually exclusive of one another. They can coexist alongside each other. How? Turn to Leviticus 19. I'm going to show you. And let's read verse 18. Now God is speaking. He said, look, you shall not take vengeance, which implies somebody has hurt you. Somebody has wronged you. All right? Somebody has done something to you that warrants a retaliatory response. But God says, don't take vengeance, nor bear a grudge against any of the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, how do we harmonize this statement with the other statements that God gave in the Old Testament concerning civil law and so on? Here's how you do it. If somebody commits a crime against you, what do you do? Some Christians say, well, you know, they broke in and stole everything in my house. But, you know, I'm called to forgive and to love and all of that, so I'm just going to forget about it. You're not, you're not operating under the right principles. If somebody commits a crime against you, you call the police and let the law do what the law is supposed to do because that's what God ordained. But then your response is to forgive them, to pray for them, and not to retaliate against them. That's our responsibility. And it's not mutually exclusive from the law. If somebody violates the laws of society, they need to be brought to justice. But I show mercy. The court is not the place for mercy. It's a personal matter. I show mercy to that person by forgiving them, praying for them, and so on. In fact, Jesus takes it even farther. He says in verse 39 of Matthew 5, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, there are many who believe that Jesus Christ here is advocating absolute pacifism. 
And you'll hear this from different groups that call themselves Christians. You know what? All war is bad. I'm not glorifying war, folks. Okay? War is necessary because of the evil in men's hearts, though. I mean, you got guys like Hitler running around. They're going to try to oppress and control, and sometimes war is necessary. But there are people that use the Bible to justify a kind of a pacifistic approach to life. Look, was Jesus Christ a pacifist? Now, he certainly controlled himself. But I remember at one point, and I'm not saying he was out of control at this illustration, was righteous anger. Remember when he walked into the temple one day and saw all the money changers ripping people off and selling of animals for sacrifices, ripping people off? What did he do? Did he play his little Casper milk toast and say, well, what are you going to do? You know, the way it is. No, he got a whip, began to drive the animals up, turned over the money tables. I mean, he was angry, and rightfully so. His father's house was being defamed. His father's house was being polluted. It has been written, my father's house should be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. That's righteous indignation. Jesus Christ was no pacifist. God is not a pacifist. All you got to do is turn to the Old Testament, read a few verses. God many times took vengeance on his enemies, and he's going to take vengeance again. Read Revelation 6 through 19. So what is he saying here? He keeps telling us. What is he saying? Tell us. All right, I'm going to. In verse 39, the word resist means to set against. Evil person is a word that refers to someone who opposes or wrongs you. So the Lord is saying, don't set yourself. Talking to us, disciples now. Don't set yourself against one who wrongs you. Or in other words, don't seek revenge when somebody violates your rights. And then Jesus gives four examples of how and in what circumstances this principle is to be applied in our lives. And the first one he says is, you know, don't retaliate or seek revenge when someone degrades you. Verse 39. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, again, many people interpret this literally. (laughs) Okay. And they say, well, look, if somebody comes up to you and smashes you on the right side of your cheek, you know, you got to turn and say, well, hit me again. That would be stupid, wouldn't it? Jesus Christ never said anything stupid. And if your interpretation of what he says makes it sound like he's saying something stupid, you got the wrong interpretation. Look, the Lord is using this to illustrate what our response should be towards, towards someone who puts us down by violating our dignity. You see, most people in life are right-handed. And so for a person to slap you on your right cheek with their right hand, how do they have to do that? They have to give you a backhand. The Jews felt that the most demeaning and degrading thing anyone could do to you was to slap you in the face with the back of their hand. This, they said, was how slave owners treated their slaves. It was an act of contempt. In fact, we do have a quote from a Roman slave that lived back in this period, Empedidas. He said, and I quote, A slave would rather be thrashed with a whip than slapped with the back of his master's hand, end quote. So Jesus is saying, when, you, when your dignity is taken away and you're dishonored, degraded, and humiliated, turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate. Don't respond with vengeance and evil. And, of course, the scripture that immediately comes to our mind is what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17, where Paul said, look, talking to believers now, repay no one evil for evil. 
have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. In other words, give wrath its proper place. It belongs with God, not with us. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head, which is just a euphemism back then for bring them to repentance. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't be caught up in evil things, okay? If somebody does evil to you, don't respond with evil. Respond with kindness and love and so on. For in so doing, you will possibly win them as a brother. They'll repent. Come to Christ. All right, so first of all, don't retaliate or seek revenge when someone degrades you. Number two, don't retaliate when someone falsely accuses you. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, Jesus said, let him have your cloak also. Now, apparently, as the Lord gives this, apparently there is some basis for this lawsuit. Possibly when someone thinks you've wronged them or cheated them, when in fact you haven't, and they go ahead and take it to court. Now, a tunic was a long shirt-like garment that extended down to your ankles. It was worn under the cloak, sometimes the coat, which was the outer garment. Jewish law said you couldn't sue somebody for his coat, since they used it at night to cover themselves, to protect themselves from the cold. And God, you can't take that away from them. God said, in fact, if you do take somebody's coat from them, and they shiver at night, and they cry out to me, I'm going to hold you accountable. And so the picture here is somebody who is so poor that all they basically have is the shirt on their back and someone who is so cruel and heartless that they are trying to take even that away from them. So Jesus is saying, look, if somebody sues you wrongfully and takes your shirt, don't begrudge him, don't seek revenge, don't be bitter, but instead show him you really didn't intend to cheat him or do him wrong by giving him your coat also. What a statement that would make, right? You tell the guy, look, man, I didn't mean to wrong you. I wasn't trying to hurt you. Ah, you're a liar. I'm taking you to court. Drags you into court. The judge sides with this guy. Okay? Hey, you're guilty. Give him your uh, tunic. Okay, but here, you'd have my coat also. What would that do? It would be a real statement to the guy that, look, I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't, wasn't trying to do anything wrong to you. And I'm going to prove it by going more than what the court demands. In other words, your witness, listen, is more important than your comfort. Your witness is more important than your comfort. All right, number three, don't retaliate. Don't seek to get even when someone takes advantage of you. First one, when someone degrades you. The second one, when somebody falsely accuses you. Number three, when somebody takes advantage of you. Verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him what? Two. You know, Roman law said a Roman soldier could compel you to carry his gear a mile. This, of course, would have been a degrading imposition as these soldiers would take advantage of everyone who happened to cross their path. I'm not sure a Roman soldier ever carried his own care unless he was out somewhere where there's no people. Because I would imagine every time uh, somebody crossed their path, they would say, hey, take my gear for a mile. A degrading imposition, right? However, Jesus didn't condemn the practice. Instead, he said to his disciples, you go two miles. The law says you go one mile, love should compel you to go the second as a witness, as a witness. 
In other words, if we only do what's required of us, we haven't done anything more than any unbeliever, is the idea. And see, the whole point that Jesus is driving home here is that as citizens of the kingdom, as, as king's kids, we want the world to know that we're different. Well, how is that going to happen? Because they see in us qualities and attributes that go beyond what's required. People have to do what's required of them. Christians, we do more than re what's required. Why? For a witness. This would apply to all different kinds of areas, of course. If you're a young person, it would apply to your chores at home, you know, especially if you're a young guy. You know, your mom says, well, you get in there and clean, you know, pick up your underwear off the floor in your bedroom. Okay, don't just do that. Make the bed, clean the room up, clean the closet, you know, that kind of thing. If you're an adult, it would extend to your responsibilities at work. Certainly would apply to ministry. If you have a ministry and you, know, you have certain responsibilities, go farther than them. But listen, I want to just mention this so you understand. The context here wasn't doing these things for people you love like family or for the Lord as in ministry. The context here, Jesus commanded it to be done for those that you don't like. Maybe those who are even your enemies, which in this case were the hated Roman soldiers. The Jews hated these Roman soldiers. These guys were extortionists. They were bullies. They used their authority to push people around, to intimidate, and to take advantage of them. And yet Jesus is saying, look, if they take advantage of you and tell you to carry their gear one mile, you carry it too as a witness. In other words, instead of focusing on your rights and your dignity, focus on the soldier's eternity. Love him more than you love yourself. All right, one more. The Lord says, look, don't resist when someone needs to borrow from you. Verse 42, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now for a lot of, well, most of the Christians I've met, certainly the ones in this church, this isn't a problem at all because you guys are very generous. In fact, I think it's a, a characteristic of a believer. When Jesus Christ comes inside and saved us and, and fills us with the Spirit, I think one of the, the qualities, the attributes, is generosity, isn't it? It's just kind of the result of your receiving Christ. I mean, you know, I see it in you guys all the time. Uh, needs I don't even know about your meeting. People say, wow, I, I needed rent or I... Uh, my, my one time a, a gal's husband abandoned her and the kids and her um, refrigerator went out and her stove. Something the church, I didn't even know about it. Something the church stepped forward and bought her a new fridge and a new stove. Wow, that's really going the extra mile. And certainly I've seen that in this church. But for those who still find themselves holding a little tightly to the purse strings, Listen to what God has said in his word about generosity. I won't have you turn to these. You can just write them down. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7, 8, and then verse 10. God said, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Verse 10, you shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him. Don't murmur and complain, remember grumbling, you know, I'm going to give this guy. If I don't, God is going to get me, and you know. Look, give out of the right heart, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works, and in all to which you put your hand. We don't do it for that. The motive has to be right. We should never help people with financial help 
because we're expecting God to bless us in return. Now, he will if our heart is right. But that should never be the motivation. It should be pure love for the sake of this person. Psalm 37, verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. James said in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do not give them the things that they need for the body, what kind of Christian are you? It's a loose paraphrase. Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 5. There is one who scatters, yet increases more, who spreads around the blessings God has given to him or her. There is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul shall be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. God blesses generosity. And I'll give you one more. Luke 6.35. Jesus said, but love your enemies and do good and lend. He's not talking about families now, your best buddy. He says, if your enemy has a need and you can help, do it. Do good for them. Lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. See, we're king's kids. Our Heavenly Father is kind to his enemies. We're going to see in the next section, he makes his sun shine on the fields of the just and the unjust. He sends his rain on those same fields of the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil. So if we have the ability to help somebody in need, we should help them. Now, let me just say this. I believe this only applies to needs, okay? If your neighbor says, look, you know, I got this great Disney vacation planned, and I'm a little, maybe a thousand bucks short, can you help us out? I mean, now, if you want to help them, that's fine. If they're friends and so on, that's fine. You can do it. You're not mandated by God to do it, though. We're only commanded to help people with their needs, not with their wants and desires. But having said that, I need to kind of balance it out by saying, look, we shouldn't give to those who are lazy and refuse to work. I mean, Paul said in Second Thessalonians 3, verse 10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. There's a balance here, right? Now, let me just qualify that a little bit. Over the last 30 years of ministry, there have been times where we've had single-parent families, and that parent was pretty irresponsible and lazy. And we found out that the kids were going hungry. Guess what? I don't care how lazy an adult is. We're not letting those kids go hungry. We can help it. So we'll come in and we'll buy food for the family. Because at that point, I'm not really worried about the laziness of the adult. I'm worried about the needs of the kids. Or sometimes we've, we've paid somebody's rent because even though they were lazy and dragging their feet about getting a job, I don't want to see the kids out in the street. So if we can help, we will in that regard. But if it's an adult who is healthy and able to work, not, not somebody who is sickly and can't work, but somebody who is healthy and able to work but refuses to, pal, you're on your own, man. You're on your own. Because God is using the growling in your stomach to break you of your laziness. I'm not going to circumvent that. I got news for you. But look, it's not always easy to determine if a person has a legitimate need, you know, through no fault of their own they have needs. Or whether it's something they have brought upon themselves through their laziness and irresponsibility. Sometimes it's not easy to determine that. So what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I err on the side of grace. That's what I do. 
if I can't determine from this person's story, if they're telling me the truth and they find themselves in hard times because of no fault of their own, or because they've been lazy and irresponsible, if I can't determine that, I'll go ahead and help them. I would rather err on the side of grace and maybe give to somebody who's lying to me than to withhold from somebody who really is being honest something they need. But let me just say this as we bring this to a close. Remember, if you do give to somebody, anybody, you've got to do it with the right heart. Not begrudgingly, because God loves a cheerful giver. All right? God loves a cheerful giver. God even said that in the law. He said, if you're going to help somebody, don't, be, don't murmur and complain about it. Do it with the right heart. All right? And if you do help them, know this. If you give them some money for a, a need... Don't hound them to pay it back. Something else God said. Forget about it. When somebody has a need, it's a legitimate need. I've determined it's it's a need they really have. And I can help them. I will say, well, here you go. Here's the money. You know, whenever you get it, you can give it back to me. No no hurry. And you know what I do then? I forget it. I really do. I, I, I actually put it in my head. I'll never see it again. If I get it back, I'm pleasantly surprised. If I don't... It's okay because I consider it as a loan to the Lord. What do you mean? Well, that, God said that. I'm not, you know, that's what He said. He, he said in Proverbs 19, verse 17, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and He will pay back what He has given. So I just say, Lord, it's up, you know, you've given it to me. You've allowed me now to give it to them. If they don't pay it back, Lord, you'll take care of it. I don't worry about that. Okay? I don't worry about that. But let me just end by saying this. This section is all about our rights okay and again we are especially as americans we are so big on our rights it's really damaging the christian church by the way and families and marriages and society in general everyone's demanding their rights and very few people are dying to self anymore in the church look at rights focus our attention on us whereas mercy focuses on others but not just any others, on others who have hurt, wronged, or taken advantage of us. That's the whole context here. It's natural for the world to retaliate when people do it wrong. But it takes a spirit-filled, underline that, spirit-filled child of God to show mercy and loving kindness. And folks, what the Lord Jesus Christ is advocating here is a supernatural life that none of us, none of us, can live up to in our own strength. I had a brother after first service come up to me and confess that he's having some problems with a guy at work, and he didn't respond the way he would have liked. He kind of got drawn into the conflict and said some things, and he was sorry for it. You know, with tears in his eyes, he said, I, I need to do better. I said, no, you don't need to do better. You need to draw close to Jesus because you can't do better. This is a supernatural life, guys. Jesus isn't saying, try harder. He is saying, abide longer. Draw close to me. I'll live my life through you. The fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, love. Love gives. Love dies to self. That's a fruit of the Spirit. That comes as I just stay connected to Jesus in fellowship. And I abide in Him. All of a sudden, He begins to live His life through me, and the result is the fruit of the Spirit starts to grow. So, if you're feeling like, wow, you know, and I get so, especially when I was a young believer, And I'd read this whole section, you know, verses 21 to 48. Man, I would feel so condemned. 
you know, because wow. I mean, this is like the Mount Everest of Christian living. And I was like, you know, I read this and go, Lord, am I a dirtbag? I mean, this, I, I, you know, and, and what the Lord showed me over the years was, look, this is not to condemn. This is to show us how weak we really are so that we draw close to him for his strength. Okay. But it does reveal to us God does not want us to live the way we're used to living is, you know, fallen beings. We're children of God now. And our greatest responsibility is not to demand our rights, is to look at the world now as opportunities to be a light to them for Jesus' sake. Guys, every time somebody wrongs you, that's a time that God is saying, look, here, you depend on me and I will, I will bring forth my love through you and it's going gonna, it's gonna to rock them. It's going to take them so far back. They're going to want to know what in the world is different about you. And then you can be a witness for me. See, if we look at life from the level of this earth, we're going to act like creatures of the earth. And we're going to want to retaliate, get our way, demand our rights. If we allow ourselves to see things from eternal perspective, the balcony, you might say, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, and we look at this life as, as a prelude to eternity, and our goal right now is not to get our rights, is to help others come to Christ, that every time somebody wrongs me, praise the Lord, I have an opportunity to show them what a Christian is really like. And you're going to win people to Christ. I, I don't believe there's a more powerful witness that when somebody hurts or takes advantage of you and you respond with love and kindness, man, that rocks people's world because we are living in a very, very evil time. The love of many has grown cold and people want to hurt others who have hurt them. We don't want to get even, folks. We want to get more than even. Somebody smashes me in my face, I don't want to smash them back. I want to take a hammer and bust their head in. I mean, that's, that's the old fall of nature, right? The guy says, that's not how I want you to live. I'm going to follow my son's example. May God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us, that we are your children. And you have called us to be a light in the darkness. You've called us, Lord, to show the love of God to a fallen world. But, Lord, it's a supernatural life. It can't be done through our flesh, the energy of our flesh. We have to depend on you. Your spirit, Lord, has to do it through us. We need your strength, your grace, your power. And that only comes as we draw close to you every day. Stay in the word. Abide in our Savior so that the spirit of God is able to flow through our lives unhindered. And, Lord, we desire that. Father, there's so much of self in us. I, I confess in my own life, Lord, so much that wants to get even. They can't do that to me. They can't say that about me. I have my rights. Lord, I actually gave up my rights when I became a Christian. I'm no longer my own. I was bought with a price. I'm to now honor and glorify you with my body and my spirit, which belong to you now. That goes for all of us, Lord. Give us the heart of our Savior. Give us love for our enemies, that we might show them your love, that they might become brothers and sisters with us in Christ. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.